Hi, folks. Uh, welcome to today's show. Um, I have uh, Jim Shockey on Coast to Coast Outdoors uh, virtual podcast today. And I'm limited for the amount of time, so I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, uh, Jim has uh, been an award-winning uh, outdoor writer, uh, naturalist, uh, wilderness outdoors guide, and outfitter for nearly 30 years. Plus, he has been on numerous uh, outdoor shows with his uh, TV show. Uh, and without further ado, I am going to bring Jim and welcome him to the show. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's, it's great to have you, Jim. Uh, it's, uh, I know uh, we've got a limited amount of time, obviously, so I'm going to jump right into things. Uh, many in the outdoor world... Uh, would say that you influenced uh, the way hunting is portrayed uh, in regards to uh, the development of uh, of the sport and new techniques. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, that that's. I, I try not to judge anybody, including myself. But uh, I, you know, I I've done my best to try and <clears throat> change the perspective of non-hunters about what hunting is and who hunters are. And, and hopefully my epitaph someday will be that I made a positive difference on the opinion of those non-hunters about hunters and hunting. So I, I've done my best. That's all I can tell you. Well, you know what? You've done tremendous because uh, there's, a, there's a lot out there, Jim, that don't like what we've, uh, we do, obviously. And uh, that you being so outspoken and uh, painting a vision there uh, of conservation, uh, I believe you were quoted there as saying hunting is conservation at one point uh, throughout a few articles that I've read previously. Yeah, it is 100%. And, and you know, here in Canada, we're kind of spoiled. We have a, a great management strategy. It's you know, biologically based. It's It's been you know, our, our North American model for since Roosevelt, really, uh, President Roosevelt. So we're spoiled here. But the rest of the world... You know, it is such an important, vital part. We've already played our vital part here in North America. Now we're sustaining it. In other parts of the world, they, conservation with hunting as a tool is the only hope for the wildlife. And I know there's people that find it counterintuitive. How do you hunt an animal to save it? But it's the reality, regardless of uh, if it fits in somebody's ideology or not. It is the only hope for the wildlife around the world, hunting as a conservation tool. It's, uh, and that's, that's a fact. I know it helps with management of overpopulations and, and so forth. And, uh, us as hunters and, uh, that we play a pivotal role in that, uh, obviously. And it's, uh, it's, it's huge, uh, to, to see people like yourself, Jim, uh, very, uh, outspoken when it comes to, uh, educating people on, on that. We, the fact that we do need the hunting, obviously, uh, uh, now, I know, Jim, you've got your, your hunting show, uh, and that airs on the Sportsman Channel, correct? In Canada, yeah, we, we've got two shows. We've got uh, Hunting Adventures. That's been airing for 17 years. And we've got Uncharted Yukon. Uh, that's been airing for the last, well, Uncharted Yukon, two years. It was a spinoff of Uncharted that was five years before that, which was a okay. spinoff of The Professionals, which was four years before Uncharted. Um, I think in Canada on the Sportsman's Network, uh, 
they're also they're playing our reruns right now that have aired in the states. I I never I, I wasn't allowed for several years to uh, air our programming in Canada. Believe it or not, we I, I applied for a CRTC number to be able to uh, to you know air our shows in Canada, and they said no, no, it's not a Canadian production. We're sitting in our edit suite, one of our two edit suites, the other one's in Vancouver. I'm Canadian as you get, you know, it, it's, it's bizarre. We, we, uh, yeah, but it, we were just dealing with a little bit of an anti and I would say somebody along the line just filed our application, but regardless of all that, that's, that's sort of, uh, the rest of the story, but we are on the sportsman's network. I believe our new programming should start to air pretty quick on uncharted Yukon July 1st, probably. So you won't have to watch reruns, but, uh, uh both those shows, uh, this will be the last year for those shows. Uh, Hunting Adventures has been going for 17 years now down the States mostly and syndicated around the world. Wow. But uh, I gave notice at the end of this year is the last of those shows. We have a new show coming out called wow. Shock Therapy. And hopefully that'll be airing as of January 1st on the Sportsman's Network as well here in Canada. Jeez, that's that's amazing. 17 years is a long-standing run for uh, any TV show, Jim. Yeah, I think I think uh, Reach for the Top beat us, and and probably you're, you're too young to remember that show, but uh, and, and probably Mash, but there's not many shows. I remember yeah. Mash, yeah. Yeah, that that, uh, that that's there's not many shows that have been on air for as long as ours. And and Jim, you've you've got the whole family uh, helping with the production of your shows. Obviously, uh, I know uh, your son. Uh, he, he does a lot of your editing, correct me if I'm wrong, and uh, you, you do partner with Eva every now and then? Yeah, Eva, uh, she came out of university and decided she wanted to learn how to hunt, and she was she was <laughs> sincere about it, and, and uh, she truly is a hunter. Our son always was a hunter, um, not so much anymore because we've got him so handcuffed in the, the edit suite, but he, he doesn't do much of the actual editing anymore. He's more of the producer. So okay. he oversees all of our productions. And he has, I would say, single-handedly changed or raised the bar for outdoor programming. It's his vision that makes our shows what they are. Um, of course, Evie's a great on-screen talent. Bran is an amazing off-screen talent, uh, pulling all the, the, the puppet strings on Evie and I to make, <laughs> us, make us dance like, like we should be. That's that's amazing. Now I know with uh, some of your hunts, Jim, you travel. Geez, I, I don't know how many countries you've been to, but uh, it's it it's had to be a lot. Obviously, how do you cope with being away from family sometimes for as, as long as you are? Uh, uh, I I know it uh, it kind of plays into the COVID situation that we're currently having now, but uh, but just give our viewers a little rundown there on how you you manage to to cope with that, Jim. Well, I mean, first I'll give, I'll put it in perspective. I, I spent the last 20 years traveling somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 days a year. So I think it averaged to 306 days a year over those 20 years. Before that, I was probably on the road 200 days a year for the last, you know, the, the 15 years before that. So over the last, that pretty well was the last 40 years of my life. Um, the most important thing for me is Nana Weezy, my wife, Louise. We've been married 35 years now, and uh, she is a very 
strong, independent, uh, uh, confident woman. She knows that when I'm out there, I'm not chasing around at, at you know nightclubs. I'm in real crappy places in the middle of nowhere, and uh, you know maybe there might be a beer around, but but you know I, I'm a hunter. That's what what I do is I go hunting there. So she was never worried about that. That's respect in our relationship that we have for each other. Um, so she, you know, and, and she told me, honestly, when, I, when I'm at home, I take a lot of space in the room. And she wanted to make sure that she had all kinds of time for our kids and she didn't need a third kid, which would have been me. So it worked for us. Now, I did call her every single day on the satellite telephone. Thank goodness for satellite telephones. They were basically invented about the same year I started the international travel and even domestic in North America. Um, so I, I call her every day, no matter where I was, what I'm doing. Now that's all slowed down. I haven't, the last 18 months has been the longest I've been at home. And this COVID thing for absolute sure has been, you know, kept me at home longer than I've ever been at home before. Jeez. That's, uh, that's, you know what, uh, a lot of our viewers, uh, I'm sure have wondered about that situation, Jim. And now that here from the man himself is, uh, gives them an idea because I know uh, a lot of transient workers and that as well that watch your shows and that and they deal with stresses on their own just uh, being away from home so to hear how you deal with that with that uh, is uh, is huge uh, to uh, those that asked the question because I had some people ask me questions prior to to try to get get the mask on the show obviously yeah. uh, well it uh, make, make no mistake that there's sacrifices involved to do, to live the life that I've lived. But, you know, it was a, it was a case of my wife, Louise, uh, my soulmate, she would never try and change me because it's who I am. You know, I, I would have been an explorer back in the day. I, I love to see what's over the next hill, across the next river, you know, on the other side of the ocean. I, I want to know all those things. And, and to keep me at home, you know, wouldn't have worked. I mean, I'm just not a nine to five guy. I'll work 20 hours a day. So I don't have to work nine to five um, and always have, you know, people ask all the time, how do you get to do what you get to do? And I say, real simple, you know, whatever age you are, start working and don't stop until you're my age. And that means every single day, there's no holidays. There's no big fancy trucks. And you know, later on, maybe if you do well, you can afford to buy a, a decent vehicle, but uh, it, it's, it's a love of a lifestyle and it's an exercise in desire. So whatever the limit of your desire is, that's as far as you'll ever get. For me, my desire is limitless when it comes to exploring the world and hunting, learning. You know, I, I want to know what's going on in these far-flung places on the conservation and in our back 40, both. You know, I, I love it. I just, I love it. I sat outside last night with Louise and uh, had a glass of wine and a, a, just a giant of a black bear walked right across our field down below us. You know, I loved yeah. it. You know, I can be sitting in, you know, I don't care if it's Tajikistan and watch a Marco Polo. I wouldn't be any more excited than what I saw there today. So, so it, it's, it's who I was. It's who I was. And, that, and you have to really determine that before you make that, choose that pathway that you're going to stay on it all in. That's who you are. And that's who I was. So not every, it's not, not for everybody. Believe me, there, like I say, there's sacrifices. There, there sure is. Uh, now, with the, with the TV show and that, Jim, uh, what would be the most memorable hunt uh, and what species? Uh, and I'm going to ask the question, uh, what TV show or what episode, maybe, if you can recall, uh, uh, did, it, uh, did it air on? 
<laughs> you know, I never got our TV shows on TV for, I mean, ever. I think I get it now on the Sportsman Channel, but I don't watch them. So, so I couldn't tell you what, what show, I could never attach it to a show. I can tell you that the most memorable hunts for me are always, always not about the species, not about world's records. Uh, they're about family. So the most memorable hunts for me, my father's last whitetail hunt. I mean, I can right now picture it. You know, Eva's first bear hunt, uh, our son, you know, when I took him to Africa and and uh, he got a giant crocodile. You know, those, those are memories for me my, my father-in-law len our, our son-in-law tim when he got the giant moose that i should have got two years ago uh you know th those are those are the hunts that mean something to me my cousin guy hunting with him my cousin rich you know th these are i don't i don't care I, the biggest world record in the world can walk across in front of me I, I don't i could care less it wouldn't mean as much as a hunt with my family uh, member whoever that is and, and friends too you know, rather than the world's record, if I had to miss one of those hunts, it, it, there's no question it wouldn't be, you know, I would, it's not even a choice. It, family always is above everything else when it comes to memorable hunts. And there's lots, you know, as far as TV show goes, we've aired many, many, many shows of our families, you know, family members hunting. Um, and, and, you know, some of our best shows, I think, are the hilarious Hal and Len, my father and father-in-law, their hunts. I remember one of those episodes. Yeah, they're fun, and, and people enjoy that, and that's those are the most memorable for me. You know what? I couldn't agree more, Jim. Uh, it's uh, 2016. I My brother got picked here in Nova Scotia for moose hunt, and uh, it, uh, it leaves uh, memories that last a lifetime, I'll tell you that for sure. Uh, now, uh, Jim, I know you've got the outfitting businesses uh, now. Uh, Let's let's touch base on that. Uh, uh, I I think there's two or three that you own. There may be more, but uh, I've read that uh, there's the the most memorable one would be the the Rogue River Outfitting uh, that you owned up in the Yukon Territory as well. Uh, what uh, what's your take on that? Uh, what would be the biggest moose that you or somebody you know at the camp may have ever taken from that? Because I know a lot of viewers are interested in your your, your, your guiding aspect, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I, I we have, uh, three outfitting territories. I, I, my first outfitting territory was Vancouver Island for black bears. And I, I think we've owned that now for 25 years. In fact, this would have been the 26th season if, if it was going to happen. Um, then we've got Saskatchewan, uh, our Canadian whitetail adventures as well. We've got a lodge out there and, and 40 deer tags. But I've actually closed that down for the last six years. I think the only people that have hunted there are Tim and Eva a couple of times. Um, we we got a few bad winters, 2007. They were deer recovering. 2013 and 14 were horrible winters. And the wolves all came down. We're not allowed to shoot wolves. Uh, the, they have to be trapped only. And the trappers, of course, there's no money in it, so they're not trapping them. So we'd see packs of 30 wolves. And 30 wolves killing one deer each a week. You do the math on that. So I shut all that down for now. Um, then we have our Rogue River opening territory up in the Yukon. That's our flagship. That's uh, 7.5 million acres, uh, 12,000 wow. miles. And there's not a single road in that entire area. That's only our camps and no houses, no people, just us in the in the late fall season. Um or in the September and, and October. 
when we hunt there. Uh, I, I love it. It's my favorite place to hunt. Moose are my favorite big game animal to hunt. To where they live, you know, the, how big they are, how magnificent, you know, how spectacular the place is. As I said, they're uh, how remote. It's the last remotest wilderness left in this world. Siberia is like Grand Central Station compared to our Yukon area. And uh, when you see a moose there, highly probable that it's never seen a hunter before or a human being. You know, it, that's why they'll come in and once they, you know, they'll wah, wah. And once they know you're not a, an, a cow, if you were using a cow call or a bull, if you are using a bull grunt to bring them in, they go, okay, fine, whatever. You know, I'll just do it with you, what I was planning to do with what was calling. So, so it's, uh, there, I, I love the Yukon, you know, the grizzly bears up there, the sheep, the mountain caribou are spectacular. And, uh, truly, I don't think there's a more beautiful place in the world. I've been to a lot of places, but there's one Valley not too far from my camp that I hunt in and have for the last 10 years, uh, that I, I truly believe is the most beautiful place in the world. It's a spiritual place. And the outdoors are, are our cathedrals as hunters anyway, but uh, to sit on that knob and look 30 miles in each direction and across a three mile wide flat valley that, you know, with mountain ranges cutting off both sides and be able to glass moose that have never seen human beings and mountain caribou, wolves, grizzly bears at any time. Uh, now, sheep, now, sheep are a little harder, but I, I love it up there. The Yukon is awesome. Now, Jim can, uh, or at your guiding outfit there in the Yukon, uh, is it strictly moose you guide for, or is there grizzlies as well, or any other species? Or is it Yeah, we, we, we guide for moose predominantly. I think we take 42 moose hunters a year, okay. a lot of Yukon moose. So they're the biggest. You asked me earlier what size is there. Uh, you know, we've taken them right up to 78 inches wide. Um, wow. We found a dead one that was 83 inches wide. Uh, it was a, a winter kill, wolf kill. But, uh, yeah, we, we've taken them the top 10 in the Boone and Crockett record book there. And we don't use airplanes to find them. It's, it's purely what's there is what's there. If we used airplanes to look for them, you know, it's legal if you wait 48 hours before you hunt them. I'm pretty sure we'd find some, some even bigger moose. Uh, but anyway, you asked about the species. We have the Alaskan Yukon moose, mountain caribou. We have some of the best mountain caribou hunting in the world there. Um, we also have the... Uh, doll sheep and the stone sheep and the fannin sheep. So the white sheep, the darker sheep, dark gray, and then the, the saddles, the gray saddles or the fannin sheep. Uh, we've got wolves, obviously. And uh, what did I miss there? Got to be missing it. Grizzly bear and black bear. But grizzly bear, fabulous grizzly bear. Yeah, one of the highest. In fact, I think it's the highest quota in the Yukon. Same with our moose or the highest quota of moose and Arguably, the caribou are right up there too. That's that's interesting because I know there's a lot there. Uh, I've got a couple of viewer comments, Jim, and I don't know if uh, you mind answering one or two uh, while we got sure. time here. Yeah. Uh, uh, Barry uh, Fordham, I know that you have a certain amount of time, but if you could ask Jim what he thinks of the new gun laws in a nutshell, if that's possible, I personally disagree with this. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, here's the thing that the people in the, you know, and we have lots of friends, they don't own guns. They're non-hunters and their perspective is why would anybody want to have a gun? You know, so, you know, they don't see why we should own assault rifles. I had a big conversation with a, 
a CEO of a bank the other day, or a, a, a savings credit union. And they don't understand that, you know, I said to him, well, wait a minute, how many cars do you have? He said, well, I've got three. And, and I said, well, am I telling you that you can't collect cars? What's the difference? And he said, well, cars don't kill people. I said, like, really? <laughs> you know, cars don't uh, kill people. Well, neither do my guns in the safe, right? If your car in the garage doesn't kill people, neither does my gun. Um, but back to the question, here, here's the problem with it. I'm, and I'm going to release a video here pretty quick in the next couple of days. My double action or double rifle that I use in Africa, so it's a break action rifle, 600 Nitro Express. It's about a $35,000 US gun. I mean, it's a collectible gun. It's been used in Africa for 100 years. It's two great big giant bullets that you have to put down or cartridges and then click it, you know, boom, boom, and then unclick it, put two more down. This has been banned. This is now an illegal gun that our prime minister says he's going to buy back. Right? And I'm not going to sell it for any less than $35,000 US if he's going to buy it. And I don't want to sell it, but if he's forcing me to because he's taken it from being a perfectly legal gun everywhere around the world, almost everywhere, and used around the world. Today, someone's using it over in Africa, I'll guarantee it, for hunting. He's going to take that away from me to make Canada safer. And, and it's, it's bizarre. I mean, it's got Turkish walnut stock. It's, it's how, how in any possible stretch of the imagination, besides the fact that cartridges are about $100 each, how can this be you know, an assault rifle? And that's what he's spinning it as, that this is assault rifles. We're making Canada safer. So these people I talked to the other day that don't have guns, they didn't know that. They think that he's banned machine guns. You know, a gangster, you know, they think that's, why do you have to have those? I don't have to have those. Personally, I don't have one of those. And I'm not allowed because I don't have a prohibited license or tag on my my FAC or PAL, whatever they're calling it nowadays. Yeah, so, PAL. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if somebody wants one, that's fine. They're so restricted and those people are so vetted that his car in his garage has got a much higher probability of killing somebody someday than their machine guns and their the guys that are, have the prohibited licenses to own those kind of guns because someone's going to steal his car someday and drive over a pedestrian. There's higher odds. No, you know, how many people have been killed by an assault rifle in Canada? Yeah, the numbers are very low uh, on anything. The number is zero. Oh. Now, if he keeps banning guns of every description, yeah. then, yeah, he makes everything an assault rifle instead of including my double-action gun. So now he can say, well, somebody got killed with a double-barrel you know, a double barrel gun some, sometime in the past. And I know shotguns as well were effective. Yeah, but, but the bottom line is, it's hunting rifles. And he's he's also banned another rifle of mine, uh, a 460 Weatherby. It's a bolt action hunting rifle. It's a 460 Weatherby. I, I've used it in Africa many times and, and people still use it all day long in Africa. And he's banned it saying it's an assault rifle. It's not a hunting rifle. And then the interesting thing was he, he said that uh, we're banning all these rifles that are not suitable for hunting, but if you're a First Nations member, you can use them for hunting. So are they for hunting or are they for hunting? Well, I assure you they're for hunting because I have two of them that are banned now that are went from being perfectly legal to being prohibited like a bazooka, like a rocket launcher, like a, 
we went yeah. from legally owned gun owners overnight to uh, paperwork criminals uh, with the straw. Well, he, he, you know, he's done it if, if we don't turn him in, right? I mean, and if he's not going to pay me for my rifles, not that I want him to pay me, but like, what? And, and he'll never get that passed in a million years. So he's created a law that is, and, and he didn't, the biggest, the biggest problem with it was there was no discussion on the, uh, on the common house of commons floor. There was no Open discussion the or they would know he, he ban, actually banned one of my air guns. It's an air gun. It's a pellet gun. I grew up shooting a pellet gun as a kid. It, it's an air gun and he banned it. Like, how can that be? It's, it's an air gun. Right. So, so, so the, the thing is back to the question that your viewer asked, um, how do I feel about it? I feel that, that the democratic process in our country was, bypassed in this particular instance with using a order and council with him and his henchmen in the back room. Um, and I think it's, it's a disingenuous service to the Canadians that, that he's passing this office, making our country safer when in fact it's doing nothing for that. He, he doesn't want to spend the money on actually making Canada safer. Get the, get the guns out of the hands of the criminals. That would be, that would be a great step. Mr. Trudeau. It, uh, it sure would. Uh, and I know, Jim, I've got you here for maybe another six minutes because uh, we're on a, a time restraint, obviously. I wanted to touch base with you on uh, the Hand of Man Museum, obviously. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. And uh, how did you amass so many art, uh, artifacts in that museum? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> It amazes me because I've seen the virtual tours that you've given on Instagram and your social media feeds. And it's like, it's wow. I know I was trying to get out there earlier or later this year, but uh, uh, COVID actually kind of prohibited yeah. that, obviously. And uh, do, do people need to purchase tickets first before visiting? Or how does that work, Jim? Can they just show up and purchase a pass? Uh, no, it, yeah, it's, it's called the Hand of Man Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts, and Conservation. So it's not a hunting museum. It's a conservation museum that touches on hunting, absolutely. Um, you asked how I amassed that much. I, I started collecting when I was 10 years old, oh, seashells wow. and, and insects and rifle cartridges. I mean, I, I, that's my diaries from back when I was 10 years old weren't about girls. Uh, they were about collecting a new cartridge, you know, uh, whatever, 30, 40 crag, some crazy, bizarre, you know, obsolete cartridge. Uh, so I started collecting all these things way back then. And, and by the way, for anyone that wants to report me that I've got cartridges on display here, no, I don't. These are at home. But uh, there is the other collections that I've, you know, my knife collection, of course, all the animals that I've collected around the world, the masks, uh, the, the carvings, the costumes from everywhere around the world, uh, the natural history, you know, there's a full uh, skeleton of a woolly mammoth in the museum. Uh, there's a full cave bear skeleton, a full woolly rhino uh, skeleton. That you know, those are twenty thousand years old. They're pre-ice age. Um, there's dinosaur bone. There's an Apatosaurus that's you know five feet tall. It's a thigh bone, uh, and it's or femur. And it, it, you know, these are all things that I've gathered in my travels over the last basically half a century. I, you know, I'm look at the gray hairs here. I'm, I'm getting old. That uh, I've been doing it for a long, long time, and and Louisa was getting tired of all this stuff stacked everywhere at home, and nor do I believe in hoarding. I'm not a you know to have all my little things in, in my little room and 
only I get to look at them. I, I had the I had the joy of discovering them, finding these pieces, and gathering them together. So they should be for everybody else. And we never truly own anything anyway. You know, we're stewards of whatever we own while we own it while we're alive. But but then it passes on. So I wanted to put all of the things that I've gathered together in one place under one roof and leave that as a legacy for for the public, for everybody. And back to your question about the tickets, it's donation only. So you know, you, you can come in and, and you if you like it, donate. If you didn't like it, you know, don't I didn't ask you for money. It's it's you know yeah, I, we get about one in a thousand people that of course has a an ideological issue with the mounted animals because there is you know a fair extensive collection of mounted animals here and uh, we get about one in a thousand that's working out too because we get a, we get over a thousand visitors a month when when COVID wasn't on now once we open up for the summer I suspect that number will be higher depending on if people are traveling but it'll come back um, but they're uh, but one in a thousand has an issue they they just have uh, we call it tunnel vision so they they look at the world like this and you know they build a fence around their vision so that uh, like a wall so that no new ideas come in and and that's you can see them everybody else there's you know that comes through they walk out thrilled and amazed and and more knowledgeable about conservation particularly um, because that's the big message if, if we don't do something we talked about it earlier around the world about the wildlife species including here in north america we don't protect that and and not by being protectionist you know we, we can't preserve something but you can certainly manage something and you can manage it in a sustainable way there's so many of us 7.5 billion of us in this world so we have to we have to learn to manage and look at these wildlife animals as a renewable resource because mm-hmm. you can't it. People are starving around the world. They're going to kill everything. They don't care about what we think about them. So give them money instead. It's and, pretty simple. And it's interesting you should say one in a thousand, Jim, because I know when we've done programs with uh, organizations I'm with, with taxidermy, obviously, uh, it, some of the un, uneducated to what we do as outdoor uh, enthusiasts, hunters, conservationists, uh, when you explain to them what uh, what transpired and the monies that go into conservation measures. Well, I'm not saying you can change everybody, but when you educate it, uh, it it changes the perspective of a lot of uh, that I've come across anyway, uh, in regards to that. Of of course, people, people are tired of being handed a a line of bull crap. I mean, they, they, you know, they call it fake news and that's a term I don't like to use, but the reality is there is very few journalists nowadays and very few outlets for journalists that want to tell both sides of the story because it's a business for these news agencies. You know, they want to appeal to the left. They want to appeal to the right. So you don't actually get a balanced news from anywhere nowadays. Uh, So people want to know the truth. They're tired of being just fed like they're idiots. You know, they don't know any better that you're lying to them. There can only be one side to the story. So when they come into this museum, they may come in leaning towards Mm anti-hunting. But when they leave, they're leaning towards pro-hunting because we've educated them and they realize, I'm not lying to them. I'm telling them the truth. This is feet on the ground. This is the facts of the matter in these various places about this species or that species, about this country, about this people, how they manage their wildlife. It's the truth. You know, I'm not a reporter sitting in an ivory tower 
you know, typing on a computer and Googling everything. I, I've been there. I've walked the walk. I know what's happening there. So I'm telling you, this is the truth. I'm just the messenger. And, and in that truth, I think comes a certain respect uh, for my opinions or my, my vision, my insight. So they listen. And, and I think people are really happy to be told and educated the, the, about the truth. And that's what we tell here. That's the conservation side of this museum. Uh, I think every single community, you know, we've got 70,000 people here in this community, the greater area. And, you know, there's a fair few tourists coming through, but every community of that size should have one of these museums. I will guarantee you that we wouldn't have this anti-hunting sentiment because that one in a thousand that really gets on their soapbox, you know, the, the tubular vision people, they wouldn't have an audience. You know, the people just go, eh, no, they're not telling the truth, right? If we had one of these museums everywhere across Canada, I, I'd be happy to open one up in every community across Canada. I'd need uh, 50 years for each one, so you know, <laughs> 100, how long do I have to live? Uh, maybe the kids will carry it on, Jim, in uh, different areas across Canada. <laughs> yeah, we, we, well, we actually looked at opening up another one, actually, because I, I do have a lot more of the wildlife species. And here's the thing, many people have collections of, animals that they've mounted over the years that they're getting older and do their kids want those animals? What are they going to do with them? You know, they had the joy and the wonder of, of finding them and exploring hunting, but uh, what do they do with them now? So I think we could, I talked to a guy today from Alberta and uh, you know, he's got, he's got enough to make in an entire museum, but it can't be just wildlife. That can only be a 30% component of it. You've got to have the natural history and the cultural arts. And then the conservation has to be the key, not the hunting. That's, uh, you know what, Jim, uh, I couldn't agree more on that. Uh, I know I had two other uh, uh, questions come in from viewers, and I don't know if there's time there. I think if you, you can go ahead and ask me. I'm, I happen to know the, the boss around here, so I can, if he okay. gives me half, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be Aspen able to on my ground. Aspen Grove uh, Outdoors, uh, if there's time, I'm just wondering what made you get started in the hunting industry? And what gave you a passion for your lifestyle or for the lifestyle? Sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, I was born a hunter. I was, my earliest memories, I was two years old, collecting beetle bugs and earthworms. I was fascinated turning over bricks and finding these. I mean, that was my earliest memory. I honestly think I was two years old, barely walking. And uh, I've always been, uh, you know, I love the outdoors. I love the wildlands, the animals. I love seeing them. I love learning about them. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, for me, it was innate. I think for many people, it's, it's actually innate. Uh, they may be able to find a isolated gene someday that'll prove that it's a hunting gene. So you are what you are. And, you know, now God forbid that you attack me because I'm just who I am. I'm just, you know, this is how I identify as a hunter, right? So they'll probably find that gene someday. I I'm, believe it's innate. Now, people can't always explore that that desire to be in the outdoors they're born in a big city downtown new york city you know on on what's what's one of fifth avenue or whatever Saks. i don't know uh they don't have a chance to go be who they really are so so i i feel for those people because who they are they can't be they have to be somebody different living in their city i, I and i think historically it's probably provable that there was 10 percent of the population always were hunters and 90% were support for the hunters. We went and got the food back 10,000 years ago before we turned into agrarian cultures. 
we hunted and gathered our food. So there would be some that were hunters, like like we all are, 10%. And, and of that 10%, I suspect, you know, there's 1% were really, really good at it. And 1% was really crappy at it, even of the 10%. But the rest of the people were support stuff. We need basket makers. You know, somebody's got to nap the flint for us. I don't know what they did, but uh, I think you're born with it. And I know I was born with it uh, for sure. So it's not about what gave me the passion. I think I was born with that passion. You know, I, I may be a little bit more obsessive than the average person about that passion. You know, I, I spent my life doing it. Um, but uh, like I say, I, I was born, I was born being a hunter. Jeez. You know what, Jim, uh, it's great to hear you answer the questions uh, because a lot of people, I know there's a lot of children here. Uh, I see my, uh, my phone lighting up and my buddy's little fellow there messaged and said, wow, you got Jim on the show. Uh, so it, you have a lot of youth as well that, uh, that follow what you do. And uh, someday uh, they, they, they hope to follow into your, uh, your footsteps. Uh, Barry has asked a, another question here. Uh, and I'm sure you probably read it here. Uh, what does he think uh, is the answer of what is going to take uh, uh, to get the outdoors people to unite in a strong united voice? We are our own worst enemy because we disagree so much, uh, which is what the government likes. Uh, what would you say, Jim, or give a perspective maybe on what it would take for a lot of organizations to unite on, uh, on the yeah. same home to, to better better fight for uh, what uh, what we do yeah it, it's a it, it depends on how important it is to to everybody you know to hunters like I, I know that if I vote you know use my vote because I want an extra dollar an hour for the minimum wage or I want uh, free something or other or I want you know a, an extra day off a week if I vote for a party because of that and that means the vote is goes against the party that is proactive in in preserving my right to be able to go into the outdoors and do what I'm passionate about, hunt and fish. Um, if I squander that vote to vote for that free extra day or extra hour, as opposed to voting for the party that has you know come out on their platform and said, we will rescind this ridiculous. Uh, order and council that our prime minister has just passed. Yeah, like I, I, I have difficulty understanding how somebody can put that extra day, you know, off a week for the because that party is promising them the world, as opposed to voting for the party that will protect what they love to do with that day off. You know, I, I, so I think until people, you know, and I'm talking about hunters, until we're all in until we truly are faced with the, the loss of what we love the, the, and loss being it, you know, the government taking it away from us because of lobby groups that are ideologues that, that believe that you know, we're bloodthirsty killers and we're have no higher sensibilities. And they convince people that that's what they are with, with the popular press, the mainstream media that goes right along with those stereotypes. But until, all hunters realize that they're going to lose it. They're going to lose what they love to do unless they forget about that extra dollar an hour in the minimum wage, unless they forget about, uh, you know, I, there's, you know, I, I think unions are a very important thing, but sometimes they tell you to who to vote for. 
But so do you vote for what your union tells you to vote for? Or do you vote for the party that will protect what you love to do? They're not going to destroy your lifestyle. But the other party that wants to take away that lifestyle, yeah, they'll destroy it. So until, like I say, until all of us get smart oh, yeah. and, and start realizing that, you know, let's vote for what's important to us. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that we'll ever get together. You know, the egos, hunting, hunting is, you know, it's like, you know, he poached it. He did, there's no way he did it himself. It's like, oh, my goodness sakes. You know, we hear these stories all the time. The, the rumors being spread by jealous. I mean, we're hunters. We, I guess we're a little jealous and envious as a, as a group. And, and so I don't know until we're all faced with losing, losing what we love. I don't know that we'll ever get together. Unfortunately, it's really sad. Or, you know, or we find a leader that, you know, is strong enough to unite us all and just say, you know, vote this way, do this, because that's the only way we're going to actually protect what we love. And the only way we're going to change these draconian laws that are being thrown at us without even debate on the floor of the, the in the parliament buildings. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I hope, I, you know, I wish it wouldn't have to come down to that where we're going to lose everything before the, everybody will say, Oh, Whoa, wait a minute. I'm going to vote for these guys. And let's, you know, protect what, you know, who we are, what we love, our lifestyle. And that's the big thing. If we don't stick together as one, we are, we're, we're going to continue to lose, uh, uh, and make your vote count uh, to uh, to support what we do as outdoors people, uh, because if not, uh, we're just going to continue down that road of destruction that's currently taking place. And it's uh, it's it's not something any of us, Jim, want to see yourself included, obviously. So if we can unite on that home front, uh, we can uh, we, we may be able to shake things up a bit to uh, to, to see better change, obviously. You know, I'll, I'll just give you a, something to think about here before I go. The hunters, the politicians, and I've talked to them. I've gone to Ottawa and tried to meet with the liberals. They wouldn't even talk to me. But conservatives, they, you know, they talk to me. And they said, why would we cater to the hunters? They never vote. The outdoorsmen never vote. We, we just kind of live and let live, and we do our thing, and well, we're, but we don't vote. And that, that's, that's the truth. And if we all banded together as a block and voted to protect our way of life, vote for the party that has said in their platform will protect our way of life, we actually can determine who wins the vote. We can determine there's enough of us that if we voted together as a block, wherever we are, whatever constituency we're in across Canada, if we voted together as a block, we would determine who wins the election every single time and we would determine that locally at our municipal level provincially territorially and federally because we are the biggest non-voting block of citizens of canada of all of them there's nobody else has that like-minded outdoor you know connection that we all have to each other and if we voted as a block we would never have to worry about these guns being taken away. We'd never have to worry about our hunting rights being taken away. We'd never have to worry about being vilified and marginalized in the popular press, the mainstream media, or by our own government. We would actually determine who wins the election. And believe me, they would start to listen to us at that point. 
So just just one final thing to everybody, you know, think about that. If we voted together, if like you said, if we joined and became one force with one voice speaking on behalf of all hunters, we would just we would determine the elections in Canada. There's enough of us. For sure. And you know, Jim, uh, that is our uh, their final note, I guess, for us on this uh, this podcast of. Uh, Coast to Coast Outdoors, episode 11. And you know what, Jim? Again, I appreciate the time that you've uh, you've allotted us. You've actually went above and beyond the allotted time for us. So uh, I I appreciate that. Our viewers appreciate you engaging with them as well. Uh, lots of comments rolling in as well. Uh, so you know what, Jim? Uh, what you're doing, uh, in my eyes and many others, obviously, from kids that watch your show to full-grown adults, Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on pushing uh, uh, the political side of things to, to do what you can, voice your concerns, uh, because uh, it uh, it does not go unnoticed, to be, be quite honest. Uh, it's uh, it's tremendous work. Uh, everything from your TV shows to your, your outfitting businesses uh, to your uh, museum that you currently hold, uh, it's, uh, it's great. Uh, and uh, again, I appreciate uh, you and your staff uh, for uh, for everything you did to, to come on the show here. And uh, uh, on one note here, Jim, that I'll say, uh, I do have something there that I will uh, get uh, Todd maybe via email to uh, send me your information. I think it may be worthy of your museum more so than me having it. Um, it's a uh, it's a squid jig. I don't have it here uh, uh, now, but uh, it's a squid jig, but it sits in a block of wood that was hand carved uh i picked it up here in cape breton nova scotia and uh like i've i've known uh fishermen that are in their late 80s early 90s that never seen one of these before so i think it's worthy there rather than me sit on it and have a collecting dust uh i think it's worthy for your museum and uh i'll, I'll be sending it out to you beautiful well it's appreciated Anything like that is, is always appreciated here. So I'll look forward to receiving it and looking forward to installing it in, in a perfect place in the, the fishing section of our museum, which we have a big one of. Perfect. Well, Jim, uh, again, uh, on behalf of myself, Jeff McNeil and Coast to Coast Outdoors, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, uh, best of luck on all your hunting adventures. And uh, uh, I'm sure I'll get out to the museum sooner than later after COVID passes. Perfect. Look forward to having you here. All right, Jim. Thanks again. Uh, you enjoy the rest of your day. You betcha. Take care. Bye-bye. So, folks, uh, there you have it. We've had uh, Jim uh, Shockey on uh, Coast to Coast Outdoors, episode uh, 11. Uh, so with that, uh, that concludes our uh, our broadcast uh, for today. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed uh, and uh, stay safe. Uh Happy hunting, happy fishing, and uh, all the best.